if uh, everyone will get settled. There's a couple of spaces uh, in the front. First, I want to mention and uh, encourage at someone's other, in consideration of of some people who are quite sensitive, if uh, you could um, not wear uh, scented products, strongly scented products, uh, some people it's hard. And I know sometimes the monastery has has uh, incense uh, burning and there's not much we can do about that, although they're not, it's not happening tonight. Um, but anyway, just to uh, keep that in mind when you come, that would be great. So, uh, and is, uh, is, is the mic that uh, Ajahn Mehta is wearing? No? Who, who could somebody, um, who's got the, uh, is Jaime, is he around? There you are. <laughs> it's the Wizard of Oz back there. Uh, <laughs> um, could you uh, turn, turn Ajahn Mehta's mic up uh, a bit? That would be great. Okay. Hello. Can you hear me? Right. He'll uh, do it. Okay. Okay. Let's see. Is that better? If it gets unpleasant, you have to let us know. <laughs> Is that better? Okay. Can you hear me? Because now... The... Is that okay? Good. <laughs> so, um, I, uh, this is the first time I'm meeting Ajahn Metta, uh, and, and uh, so it's a real treat for me. And um, uh, as I said... She and uh, two other nuns are have established uh, a, um, a monastery, a nuns monastery in the uh, out in the in San Francisco on Forty Eighth, around uh, Ocean Beach, and uh, in out in the sunset. And um, I look forward to visiting myself. And uh, now we can look forward to hearing. Uh, the Dhamma from uh, from Ajahn. So, please. Uh. Yeah. Um, I'd like also to start with uh, expressing my appreciation for being invited to come here. I feel very honored, and it's very nice meeting you, James. We, as James said, we have never seen each other before. I have seen photos of him on websites. <laughs> but but I've never had the honor really to meet him directly. So for tonight, what I had in mind to speak about is the theme of renunciation. (coughs) As you all more or less know that every spiritual path, every path of practice you are entering will have more or less renunciation as part of that. It's like when you look into <coughs> the, the different Buddhist traditions, you see it quite clearly, and especially the tradition that I'm belonging to, the Theravada tradition, is, has a strong emphasis on that. But also other spiritual traditions do practice renunciation, and it seems like renunciation is the basis of the basis of the path in a way that is pointing at what is essential here, what is essential in my life, what is essential for this spiritual path. As a Theravada Nan, and in the tradition that I have been grown up in, so to say, when we, when we change from being a novice, an anagaika, turning 
into a nun. <laughs> what we have to do is we are giving up every possession. We are, we are completely letting go for everything that belonged to us before. So when we are, when we are starting the nun's life, like before our nun's ordination, we do give away everything that we possessed so far. And my, exp my personal experience of that was very surprising because I didn't expect it to be actually so joyful. <laughs> I didn't expect it to be so the effect that it had was feeling so light, feeling and experiencing that actually, yes, this is a preparation for starting completely new, letting behind your past, your past in terms of every material belonging. And my life as a nun, I mean, I have to say, you, we all accumulate things, and I have lots of books, for example. <laughs> and that has come together through presents and things that were offered to me. But what, what I do experience is that living the life as a nun without having power, possession, or access to money has opened a complete different chapter in my life. And what it brought into it is the experience of, believe it or not, freedom and contentment. It's like I can see that I'm not thinking of what do I need to get or what do I buy next or what is very cheap on offer right now. And it's just, it's just not part of my life anymore. And I'm sharing that with you, not to say, uh, I'm not, of course I'm not expecting you to do the same. Why I'm sharing this is, it is so much the opposite of what we are meeting living in this society, and especially in the Western society. I've been spending quite some time in Asia and like being on pilgrimage and having a whole sabbatical year in India and Sri Lanka, and I see... I can say I see the difference. And it doesn't mean that people in Asia don't want to have material goods or don't long for having more. But most people over there are in the position where they are just about having enough. And what I have seen is in that situation, much more contentment than I meet in our society, in the Western society. And to, to kind of conclude what I started off with, it's like having more does not lead to more contentment does not lead to more happiness. And living monastic life or living life in quite, uh, in, in a form that is quite distinguished in terms of what what you have as personal possessions and what not, there is 
the experience of how simplicity, simplicity of life is actually supporting very directly your experience of practice. Because as more complexities there are in our lives, as more responsibilities and engagements and um, entanglement with the world, as less we are actually having the inner space to develop the practice in. And renunciation, in my experience, is it's a letting go or a letting be coming from a point of fullness. It is not a cutting off, shutting out, or in any way a forceful act. If I'm forcing myself to be content with little, it would not work. And I mean, I can say most of us who have started monastic life have started this from a point of being, (laughs) bluntly said, being fed up with the worldly life, being fed up with um, with the consummation, with the focus on having more, getting more, accumulating more. I mean, for myself, I can say, quite a while before I started monastic life, I felt absolutely tired of it. It was just... Having more was became very clear to me was not adding to contentment anymore. It was more like with having more you you are your life is more cluttered it's more kind of filled with stuff and I was asking myself, why do I really need that? What, what do I really need? And I could see that many of the things that belonged to me at that time were more like a burden. It was adding to a luggage that I was carrying around with me anyway. And this is, this is really from a point of monastic. See that from that perspective. I'm not expecting anybody of you to have the same, the same view on what I'm saying. But I'm saying that because we do take for granted that... We, continue, we can continue the lifestyle we are living right now. And even so, there are lots of wake-up calls, global warming, end of resources. We still, I think most of us, haven't really realized what does that mean and not in terms of what does that mean in, like for our government, for the wider community, but what does it mean to me? How does that affect me when I hear that? What I'm pointing at is that the only way we can start living with an intention of being responsible 
for how we are living our lives. I think the only way to start is really with ourselves and look into your life and see and ask yourself the question of what do I really need? What do I really need in order to be content? And then look what is there that you might see that is not necessary. So renunciation is turning towards, in my understanding, it's really turning towards what is essential, what is really important here. What do I want to do with my life? What do I want to live in this life? What are, what are my values? How can I help and contribute to, to really manifesting them? And you will, you will notice that when you really look deeper into that, there are things, I'm sure, in, in each of you that, that you do because it's a, a habit. It's something you have done for a long time and you have got used to it. But what place does it have? How important is it? It's interesting, like, over this last half year that I've been spending in this country, this theme of renunciation has come up in many of the discussions I had with lay people. Because I think, I mean, this is not a dialogue and I'm speaking to you right now, but there will be time for questions later and I will try to respond to that. But like this theme of, of letting go, of looking into how how do I live this life? What, what is, what place does material wealth or material well-being has in that? And also, like, what does go beyond that? And when I speak, like, one aspect that I've been speaking right now is the material aspect. And of course, there's also the aspect, like the other side that is more like into going into like how, what do I expect from others in terms of giving attention, support, giving um like how you live your relationships, how much you expect from others in a relationship. And I don't mean just like partner relationships, friendships, family um, relations. And kind of, that is the other aspect. It's like, how much am I willing to, to give in there? And that is like the other side of renunciation. It's like, it's generosity. What I don't use, what I don't expect to receive myself, I can actually give to others. I can give attention. I can give support. I can give, um, maybe, I can give just to sit down to listen to somebody who needs some connection, who needs somebody to be heard. And I think that is another very important aspect that we know we are 
when we renounce from the amount that we expect to receive, we are actually able to give and to share with others. Renunciation in terms of insight or wisdom practice is really looking into the three characteristics of impermanence, suffering, and not-self. When we can see renunciation in terms of impermanence, you can see that what you renounce, what you let go of, is going away anyway. Whatever you, whatever you are, whatever we accumulate, whatever we gather around, what do you take with you into your next life? And when we, when we can see and penetrate the understanding of impermanence, we can see that even what belongs to us now is changing. It doesn't stay like that. Even like just from the things that you are using, say like you have a car now, you just got a new car, and you might be very happy and you might be very glad to have that, but in a few years, what does happen to your car? It's not new anymore and you might not like it so much anymore and it might start falling apart and impermanence. So when you, when you see an object like that and you, you know, well, does it really belong to me in the first place? It's just for, for reflection. Like, Ajahn Shah had, had a very lovely saying. He was, uh, he was holding up, one day he was holding up a cup and was showing it to the monks, and he was saying, this cup is already broken. Impermanence. I hope it makes sense. <laughs> what, what I want to point here at is we do take for granted that things belong to us and that we take for granted that we have a certain lifestyle. And when you look at that in terms of impermanence, see what comes up in your mind. How long does this make me happy? How long does this last? I mean, for my, for my own practice, I find working with impermanence very helpful because it shows me that what I is what is so important today. What's about that in three days? What's about that in a year's time? What's about that in ten years' time? So what's the fuss about it that I'm making? <laughs> I'm just really questioning that. Then the second part, suffering. I mean, the Buddha says very clearly, suffering is there because of craving, because of holding on, clinging. And with every possession, with every accumulation we have, we do add to the craving. And suffering comes because we don't have what we want, 
or we have what we don't want, or we can't, um, we can't continue to have what we want. So it's just like when you look like at that in terms of renunciation, when you see with everything that I'm gathering, everything that I'm clinging to, I do create more suffering. And letting go is actually stepping out of that relationship of clinging. And it doesn't mean, don't get me wrong, I don't mean you should not have any possessions. You, you should just be a wanderer without any, without, with a rope and an arms board. <laughs> but what I, what I mean is, see if you can make the step out of the holding on to, of possession, the step out of being attached to the things that you are living with, the people that you are living with, even the sangha that you are practicing with. It's, it's being aware when I'm identifying with the world that I'm living with in, I do create suffering for myself and for others. And we won't be able immediately to stop that. But what I want to encourage here is reflecting. Reflect around that. Look at situations in your life and see what am I able to change? We can't change other people. We can't change the whole society. But we can change our bit in that. We can change what we are contributing to it. And this is the only thing we really can change. And contributing in terms of uh, really joining in with the material consummation, but also in terms of of our minds, what we create in our minds. It's even more important than that. And the third aspect, the aspect of not-self, is when we come to the point that we can see the flow of impermanence, the suffering, suffering that arises out of impermanence, we can start to see that what appears, what, what manifests in our lives, how our lives manifest, is, does not belong to us. It, it, is, it is empty of what we put into as mine, as me, as myself. And when we can say, uh, when we can say and when we can see that these are appearances and they come and they go, they are like, like clouds floating through the sky. The sky is empty and the clouds are passing through. They, they appear, they are there for a while and then they disappear. When we, when we can see that, it does loosen the, the grip of attachment, the grip of identification. Okay, I think I'd like to stop here. I hope for this for your reflection.
So uh, um, we have a mic here. And there's a mic. Thank you, Ajahn Mehta. Um, I want a little. I want to put a little pitch in for Ajahn Mehta. I've I've done a retreat in I think it was June that she co-led with Ajahn Suchito at Spirit Rock, and it was so powerful. It was so beautiful for me to experience you, and I think it would be great if you could treat yourself sometime to visit the monastery and maybe do a retreat with her. There's a whole different spin when it's coming from this this kind of energy. So I, I have a lot of gratitude for that experience. And I really enjoyed what you said tonight about... Um, I don't like this word, uh, whatever that word is you're using. Um, I forget it. I have a block. Renunciation. Renunciation. I, don't, that, I have a block on it. It reminds me of my early Catholic drama. But um, everything you said is pure gold for me. Um, the whole thing about anatta, which sounds so complicated and confusing, I'd love to hear more about non-self or emptiness without it being complicated or confusing. I think it's very simple, simple nuts and bolts. And it helps me to hear about what you could say about emptiness and also impermanence. Um, the Rinpoche who I did this retreat yesterday I came off a retreat with James who co-led it with Anam Tubton Rinpoche up in the Santa Cruz Mountains he used the term it's all a bunch of baloney and I think a bunch of, a bunch of baloney, yeah, as, a ma- as a mantra he is it's a bunch of baloney as a mantra a repetition, it's a bunch of baloney, including I, me, and Mayan, mm-hmm. and everything I see and everything I attach to and everything I cling to, hoping I'll have a better empire built or something, you know? Yeah. That it's all a bunch of baloney. And it kind of put me off again. I didn't like this idea of Maya and illusion he was talking about. It never hits me the right way. But... I think he's talking about the mind and the conditioned attitudes about making everything a solid hope to have a better continuous yeah. security. Yeah. That's the illusion and the bunch of baloney. It's the mind. Mm-hmm. I wish you could speak more about that if it makes any sense mm-hmm. to you. Or yeah. Um, when I, yeah. How, how I'm practicing myself with anatta is looking, I mean, you can take your body, look at your body and see, like, the body, is that mine? Is that myself? And I remember before I started with the practice, there was no doubt that this body was mine, and it definitely belonged to me. (laughs) And very early in my monastic life, I just had entered two months before uh, my mother died very suddenly. And it was, it was very, it was a big shock and it was very, very difficult for me. And I remember sitting next to her body and it was very clear that was, that was not her very clear. I just, and I was so surprised. I was, I was kind of, I, I did some chanting and things that we do when somebody dies, and, and I just knew that that isn't her. And that was a very, very strong experience for me. That, that was the first time that I, that I, and we do chant this, the body is not self, and, and so that came very strongly when I was sitting there with her. And what I experienced then later, I was sitting in the garden of her house and in places which she liked very much. And I felt her presence very strong. So what, like when I, when I look at my body, 
I can see also that, see what I call my body is actually a concept. It's like if I take the head off and put it aside, <laughs> is this still my body? Or if I take, I mean, this is a simile the, the Buddha was using. If you put, if you take a body apart, if you chop it off and you just pat it on the ground, is that still the body? What it points at is what we call a body, what we call a chair, what we call a cupboard, what we call a table, are compoundings, are things that are created in our minds. We We have the convenience to call that that I think it's a chair. Maybe I'm even wrong with that. <laughs> but it, and it has certain components. Without these components, this would not be a chair anymore. The same with the body. Without the arms, without the legs, without the head, this wouldn't be the body anymore. So what is the body? It's a, it's a concept. And on top of that concept, we are creating the I, like the the mine. This body is mine. That comes after we have created the concept of this. When when you see something like this, this is a body, you know. And this is your body, and this is your body. And the your and mine is. On projected on top of the object. So, without the mind, there would the mind, there would just be the body. But if you take the components apart of the body, there's no body anymore. So, if the body would be really a self, would be really an existing entity then it wouldn't be possible to take it apart. When you work in that way, with anatta looking through that, you get closer to the understanding of it. But it will take time. It's not something that happens just like this. Because you really do need to look deeper. Below concepts, exactly. But it's, it's important to understand. I mean, what I'm saying now is also a concept. You know? But sometimes we need to use concepts in order to go beyond concept. And the Buddha was very much doing that in, in many of his teachings, especially in terms of anatta. He was using objects or concepts to explain, well, actually, it doesn't, it does not continue. It's not something that is fixed. It's something that is created. This would be my answer to your question. Would you like to add something? I really appreciated your um, drawing together the two concepts of impermanence and renunciation. It really, it really struck me. Um, I think I feel internal pressure sometimes to renounce when I'm not ready, and you kind of spoke to that. And what I understood from your from your Dharma talk is that it's developmental. It's it's developmental. Mm-hmm. That the more you know, the more that I'm able, the more that I am able to open up to and understand and see clearly the nature of impermanence. That the renunciation can come from that. And that is the right point, exactly. And I, I just, I just really appreciate hearing that tonight. Yeah, and I mean, maybe just to add, 
Renunciation is not, or true renunciation, is not an act of will, it's not an act of harshness. Actually, it's a joyful act. It comes out of fullness, of, of wholeness. Like, when, when, you, when you are in contact with, with that wholeness, letting go comes it's naturally. Yeah. It's just irrelevant to hold yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, would you speak to how love and generosity and kindness fit in to this dynamic? Very easy. <laughs> um, I mentioned already that um, that the other side of renunciation is generosity. And with generosity, but also with renunciation. Kindness is just, it's almost, it's almost the ground of renunciation. It's like when, when I say, when I renounce my personal time, like say, the time for my personal practice. I, let's say I just make something up right now. Um, I have planned this afternoon to have two hours of practice for myself. What can happen is that a friend calls in and says to me, well, I'm really having a hard time. To, can I come and see you? Renunciation in that, in that situation is I'm saying yes, I'm I'm there for you, just come over, or should I come? What, I'm, what I do is I'm renouncing something that is important to me, and it's worthwhile doing. But because I see that the need of my friend in this situation is more important than my need for practice, that is loving kindness, that is compassion. And this is how you practice by renunciation. At the same time, you practice generosity, you practice kindness and compassion. And so we, we sometimes we don't even notice that we are doing it. You know? We all do that. And in that way, it's a natural part of it. It couldn't be otherwise. And just in bigger sense, like if we, if we determine for us, I really want to reduce the amount of resources that I'm using in my life. Like, say I, I'm, I'm buying a car that is a hybrid car, I'm, I'm really looking at how much electricity do I use in my house. This is a kindness towards nature. It's, it's a kindness for, so the earth can actually continue to exist and human beings on earth. It's a just tiny bit of it, but it does, it does matter. Yeah? Does that explain your, your question? Really? Okay, good. Um, I'm wondering if you have a, a view of what this world would be like if we all renounced. Um, in, <laughs> well, um, I mean, it's, it's really a question about um, this room is filled with luxurious items and yeah. we have hot water and oil and so... Um, If you have a vision of what it would be like, it, it would be interesting for me to hear. The vision of how the world would look like if we are all practicing renunciation. 
Yes. Okay, this is a wishful thinking vision. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No. O- only if that's um, something that's beneficial for the world. If, if. I mean, in my vision, the world would look like that. Every human being or every being on this on this earth has a place in it. Every human being and every also I'm not on, not only human being but also animals have enough to eat, have enough to drink, and there wouldn't be so much affluent in this country. I don't mean just this in the West. It would be. We would have less, but other people in other places would have a little bit more. And, like, for example, this comes right now, (laughs) um, cars would be shared. Don't belong to anybody personally anymore, or maybe, but the the people who have cars share them. I mean, many things like that. I think it's what it, that what it points at. Like, for example, in monastic life, we do, yes, I mean, in this monastery, like in our new monastery, we don't yet have a car, but we get driven when we need it. And, and in the other monasteries, we do have, have cars, but they, they are there to be used by everybody who needs to. It's a completely different concept. There's not this, oh, I really need this car because it fits my personality. <laughs> kind of, which is hilarious. <laughs> Honestly, that is absolutely nuts. <laughs> Does it make sense? Uh, yes, that's, that's the perfect answer. So thank you. Okay, I could, yes, I could do some chanting. Um, <clears throat> and I want to, in, do you have, like, do you have the text of the Metta Sutta? Uh, no. Uh-huh. I want to invite those of you, I know there are some people here who come quite regularly to the monastery. Do, do people know the English text of the Metta Sutta? Join in with me. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and and skillful, not part and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the sea, 
to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another. Or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. Outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, freed from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views. The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. May all beings be well. So, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure meeting you and having you here. So uh, please go and check out the monastery in in San Francisco, and uh, hope you come back sometime. So have a wonderful week, and uh, hopefully see you next week. Thank you very much.